0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts.
1: One thing that's evident today across the boards is that there is a divide, or better put, a number of divides that exist societally. Whether it's the subject of abortion, immigration, gender, you name it, there are definite opinions on many sides, not just two. This is not a new phenomenon that people disagree with each other, but with the advent of social platforms, people can disagree vehemently from the comforts of their home where they are free to argue and get into firefights with people far away and possibly they don't even really know. This is the current twist that fuels the fire of dissent rather than discussion. Now, when Jesus gave the church its marching orders before he ascended to heaven, he didn't tell his disciples to get good at arguing. So, Charles, do you think it is fruitful to argue with people when it comes to sharing the faith?
0: I guess it depends on how we define argue. You know, if if we begin to share our worldview, our biblically-based Worldview with people who absolutely reject it or don't know anything about it, there may be some level of disagreement or misunderstanding or dialogue. I think that what we have to be careful of, though, is if the purpose of our interacting with an unbeliever is to share the message of the kingdom with them in a way that engages them as opposed to running them off, at least in that instance, then yeah, we need to be somewhat winsome in our interaction, and be prepared for those who themselves may get angry or extremely disagreeable. And, you know, there's the old saying, I'm not sure it's found anywhere in Scripture. Matter of fact, I'm sure it's not, that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar.
1: Yes. So argument has taken on a connotation that's very different than it would be, for example, in a debate situation. I make an argument, you make an argument. Today, argument means nastiness, means name-calling, all sorts of logical fallacies that can be thrown at someone else because the intent or the purpose is to win. So do you think it's fair to say that as we are engaging the culture in a biblical view of things, that the primary goal should not be to let that other person or that other group see where they're wrong.
0: If I understand your question, our, our goals, maybe, let me maybe rephrase it, are you saying uh, our goal should not be to necessarily trounce or triumph over someone in a discussion concerning our beliefs?
1: Right, because is that the mode by which people change? If If I want to vanquish you and I want you to be so... I'm certain that my arguments are better than yours. I'm smart. You're stupid. Have I gone off the mission that as a child of the kingdom, as a servant of Christ that I'm on?
0: Yeah, I think to some extent we have. I think it depends on the context, although in either context, whether we're dealing with, say, someone we've not met before, we're seated next to on a plane or a train or whatever, and we engage in one of those sorts of conversations. On the other hand, I like the example of Paul in Acts 18, and I'm just going to read verses 5 and 6. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments off and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So, I mean, I, this, we aren't told, I guess, every moment of every part of that interaction but his ultimate act was not to continue to argue with them. And I'm guessing he probably didn't argue with them much at all. I think they were the ones throwing the verbal brickbats at him. But his final goodbye was what he, what you heard that I read. And in that case, you're, you're dealing with something very different, perhaps, than someone who honestly is ignorant of the truth and maybe just out of a gut reaction is disagreeable because of what they've always heard or they're product of the modern cultural milieu, and so their first reaction is to say, well, wait a minute, that's not what I heard in public school or from the local news broadcast or whatever.
1: I think Acts is a great primer on how you go about fulfilling the Great Commission. It's not that either the apostles, Peter, James, John, or Paul, the latter apostle, We're surprised at opposition. I think sometimes modern Christians are surprised at opposition. Like, how could anybody reject this? I mean, this makes so much sense. Well, the people I referenced, they expected opposition. Jesus told them there'd be opposition. But I think what's clear in the interactions the apostles have as they're evangelizing, that they didn't have a dog in the fight. In other words, they weren't going to be financially better off They wouldn't have had a higher status in society if people accepted it. As a matter of fact, they went in knowing that they'd be beaten, jailed, etc. So don't you think when we get into arguing mode, it can shift from I want to present truth to I want to better you? That it's easy to just try to take out your sword and vanquish the other person as opposed to the purpose of the interaction to be, to help someone see the truth.
0: Yes, and part of the challenge we face is something you mentioned at the beginning, is the current tone of our culture sort of fosters an angry interaction. You know, we have social media where if we don't like something someone has said, we will respond in a way that we would hardly ever do in person or even in a written letter. I know of one person who... Uh, in one of the social media, they have, you have the ability to block people. And this individual has a list of blocked people probably two miles long. Not necessarily because uh, he, she has had any negative reaction directly with them, but because they just saw something they didn't like and that's it. You're out. Well, you can't really do that in real life, at least not and maintain any human level of communication. But on the other hand, some of this goes back A long way in modern times, where we as Christians want to show that our Christian worldview, from the standpoint of, I guess, what I'll call academic apologetics, is consistent and the pagan worldview, which is everything else, is not. And I can think of one well known Christian writer and author who's more or less close to our orbit, and I'm going to intentionally not mention any names here. Good. Or he was. And he was well-known in his day for having debates to some extent with unbelievers, one or two in particular. And I can think of one occasion where someone who was there said that he fairly well defeated, quote unquote, his opponent, if you will, but that after the debate was formally over, this particular man, this Christian writer and philosopher went to the person that he had had the debate with and genuinely began to express sincere concern for him and uh, attempted to, in a good way, witness to him. On the other hand, I can think of someone else who is also well-known in more, I'll say, more recent times. And he's sort of the guy that everybody points to as the the great king of debates and defeating atheists and all kinds of people in debate. That's what this individual is known for. Now, I, I don't know, maybe he might have gone to people afterwards and did the same thing the other guy did. But you don't usually associate his name with that. So I I think this is an important point that we have to remember. Not all of life is an academic debate in in a philosophy class or a theology class. And 99.9% of your encounters are not going to be that way. They're going to be with ordinary, average people. And something else we need to remember, and I'll throw this in back to you, is what part should our understanding of God's sovereignty play when we do have these kind of discussions with
1: people and i think that's probably the key point when i say why argue first of all do we believe if someone is holding to a position that's not biblical that they're ever going to be right in that particular area I don't mean like if they say it's three o'clock, we can't believe them because they're not a Christian because if you look at the clock, it says it's three o'clock. I'm talking about that there is no God or it doesn't matter what I do here because there's nothing after we die. That's an incorrect view and it's a view that they will come to understand when they die, that they'll say, wow, I didn't have the correct view and they there won't be the opportunity to do the kind of I will call nonsense that we get into. We're trying to show the, the person who rejects God and try to coax him into it. If that person isn't responding to the truth, going back to the idea of sovereignty, we have to say God has not revealed truth to that person yet. It doesn't mean we don't oppose what this person says or does in terms of policy, whatever, but we should never get into the mode that we just have to have the right argument and that will change a person.
0: Exactly, and uh, this goes back to something that you and I talked about last week, maybe uh, off the mic, that a certain amount of evangelical and Reformed Christian discussion has sort of um, eventuated into a point where the goal is to convince you that my theology is the correct one and yours is wrong. Now, this is particularly the case if we're talking within the boundaries of fellow believers, Uh, but even if we aren't, I mean this kind of mindset says, well, you know, I, I don't want the unbeliever to go off to that church or this church or that church. They, they've they got to believe exactly what I believe, and therefore my goal is not so much to present them with the full-orbed kingdom message, but to convince them of the um, illogical nature of their belief and get them to embrace a particular belief system. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. I heard a Greek scholar one time point out that the word that is translated repent in most of our New Testaments, is a term that also includes with it the idea of changing the mind, changing the path. So it's not just the fact that we we want to convince somebody to start mentally, uh, academically believing certain propositional statements. I mean, I think that's an important thing. I don't want to say that it's not. But this is an entire change of life. It is, I used the term a while ago, it's full-orbed. You know, there are plenty of people who can rattle off either written or verbal algebra and calculus expressions, but their life isn't affected by it. So the message of the kingdom is a full kingdom message. It's not just, you know, adjusting your your mental state. It is to adjust all of life. And so if we give the impression that we just want to dominate someone in an argument, however important that may be at the time, I think we're giving the wrong message.
1: And I'd go one step further in terms of the whole social platform social media. I think people need to balance their interactions, so if you have more encounters with people who you don't see and you are not in the same proximity to actually you know touch if you had to, then the people you see in person if if you're not sharing your world view in person in a responsive way that you say something and then the person says something that we don't have a thumbs up or a thumbs down, that's engaging, which you used the word earlier, the people we come in contact with. I don't think you can evangelize on social media, especially because the platform of that media and even what we would call the legacy media is to have ratings, make profits. And how do they do that? By getting people at odds with each other. So if I let you see people who agree with you on social media, and that's pretty much what you see, it would be easy for you to think, well, everybody agrees with me. Until you realize (laughs) that the news feeds of the other people are getting what agree with them. And if you're going to turn on the television, very few people will turn on the news outlet that doesn't agree with them. So people become more and more polarized. And I believe that makes it difficult if you're not aware of the intentional polarization to how you would actually engage with people who don't agree with you.
0: And I'm just thinking, as you're mentioning these things that uh, in, Several places, I think, in Ephesians and perhaps Galatians, Paul lists the qualifications of an elder and or a pastor. And one of those qualifications is that he not be a man who's given to outbursts of anger, and the idea that it would be someone in control of those emotions. And of course, that's within the household of faith, where perhaps it's even more important. Matter of fact, one of the more well-known passages, Ephesians 4.25, where Paul says, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So he's talking about the church or, uh, you know, a Christian family. And he says, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So there are all kinds of injunctions given to us in scripture and to, to, to be on guard against this sort of thing. And As you said, I think that the 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 current cultural expression lends itself in our social media interactions to being more combative, uh, more angry, and I think that we sometimes have forgotten the power of a peaceful word and maintaining that, Uh, even when things, you you may find yourself getting very uh, hot under the collar, so to speak just before we signed on, I, in God's good providence, I happened to see this meme someone posted on social media, yes, but it says this, it said, somebody is mad at you right now because you picked peace over drama and distance over disrespect. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? And I I remember many years ago, my wife and I had rented an apartment when I was in seminary, and we, after the one year, went to another apartment, and uh, at the end of the first year we moved back to her parents home and i got a bill in the mail for the electric bill for that apartment that we had vacated several months earlier and i called the man who rented the apartment and i mean i was ready to do battle with this guy and he was an elder in a in a reformed church in that area and i said look what is this i haven't been in there that that apartment for months at a time i get this and i forgot the the drift of the conversation. But what I'll never forget is that it reached a point very quickly where I was completely disarmed in my anger by his attitude, which was a very peaceful one and a one that basically ended up saying, well, listen, I'm I'm okay with that. If that's the way you understand it, I'm willing to just forget this whole thing. (laughs) And you know what I did? I said, no, 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 I'll go ahead and pay it. (laughs) I'm serious. It actually
1: happened. So there's an, that, that sort of answers the question. Why argue? In other words, he, he heard you. And I think that's the important part. Once we know that someone has understood what we say, let's say they don't change their mind. Okay. So they haven't changed their mind yet. Maybe they'll never change their mind. But instead of going for winning, how about going for understanding that I've made my case Which means that when you make your case, you better know your Bible, you better know your facts, that the halfway measures of, well, the state should do this, but that's not really what the Bible says. Why not just say what the Bible says, providing you're sure that that's what the Bible says and you don't want to compromise with what the Bible says, and then let the truth be out there and the person receives it or not. Because we get into this mode, like I've seen plenty of people, you know, hate the police, support the police. Okay, and each group can get the other person or the other group really mad. Well, first century, hate the centurions. Well, it was a centurion who witnessed the entire crucifixion, probably was part of the enforcement, and watching what took place and experiencing it, he said, truly, this is the son of God. So. Let's not be so quick to categorize so we can have an us versus them, because a lot of them become us's when they convert.
0: Yeah, and that A.D. first century setting is an important one. And we've mentioned this before in other podcasts, that the thing that led to the eventual triumph of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire was not local Christian apologetics professors standing on street corners in some Roman province debating pagan philosophers. Now, yeah, we know Paul engaged people in those discussions in his ministry, but that was a part of his unique ministry. The thing that caused the gospel and the kingdom message to spread was the diaconal ministry of the church, people ministering to the needs of others without necessarily being that concerned about you know, what their beliefs were. And that eventually was what won the day, or at least got people to where they would be willing to listen to what exactly is it these strange people believe who are so different than the rest of us. And I think that's an element too that completely gets obliterated when everything is focused on having, you know, powerful arguments and destroying people uh, who disagree with us verbally. So I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind that it's, it's the attitude of mercy and peace and grace in terms of interacting with the unbeliever, that is very important. And even with the case that I mentioned earlier in Acts 16, where Paul is interacting with the Jews, I'm sure he had, and I don't know about it, in this particular instance when they had left Macedonia. I'm not sure if that's where they were, but he'd had many other interactions, probably, maybe even with these same men. You know, but his attitude was just like you said, I've presented this information to you. I've laid out the message to you. I can't say anymore. I bid you farewell, I hope you change your mind,
1: exactly. and if we look at it i I don't think that apologetics is not something we could focus on, but apologetics is more for us than for them, and by that, I mean when Peter says, Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you, if in this apologetics discussion, you are not bringing people back to the reality that they're entrenched in sin they're going to have a bad ending should they not repent of their sin that we're in a position where we need to be certain so we can understand where they're coming from we find points of commonality but a lot of people want to just prove like i can prove this and i can prove that and i can prove that and then it gets adversarial and maybe take one point but I, i go back to the idea that if you take a look at the book of Acts, how did that jailer in Acts become converted and then asked to be baptized? It wasn't because when Paul was in shackles in the innermost prison that he was screaming out doctrinal truths. It's when Something dramatic happened, the earthquake and the chains fell off. Here's a guy who's about to stab himself because he knows he's in deep trouble because the prisoners will escape. And only to discover, no, we haven't escaped. And and Charles, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't think everybody was in that prison because they were preaching the gospel. No, Imagine I'm there, sure. were, there were other people in the prison for other reasons, but they didn't leave either. So somehow or other, <laughs> Paul said, Oh, no, no, nobody's going anywhere. So it was probably a testimony to them too. It's like, what? Okay. What's going on here? So it's an expression. Actions speak louder than words. And we got it. words are important. We have to hold biblical positions. But if we hate that person, more than we hate the deception of the sin they are engrossed in, then maybe we're going to shoot at them rather than looking at them as someone who, or people who need salvation. If we ever lose sight that what we're going for is that people will recognize their need then I think we can get off into and become the pawns or the puppets of the conservative media, as opposed to the liberal media, who count on us fighting with each other. That's why I said, what if we just didn't do it like that guy you talked about? He heard your case and he said, okay, I I understand. And obviously there was something in, why did you agree at that point to pay? Um, I don't know, but my guess is it had something to do that that peaceful answer turned away wrath.
0: Yeah, it absolutely did in that case. But I want to make sure our listeners understand that, say, for example, um, if an unbeliever happens to be breaking into my house with the intent on uh, serious criminal activity against me or my wife, yeah, I'm I'm going to take measures to stop that. That's an entirely different thing, an entirely different encounter with an unbeliever as opposed to what we're talking about and what we might broadly call an evangelistic type of encounter. But Charles, Uh,
1: I I will grant you, yes, you're you're being gracious. An unbeliever is breaking into my house. I don't know that we have to make that differentiation. Oh, there's a believer (laughs) breaking into my house as opposed to an unbeliever breaking into my house. How about a person who's demonstrating what it is he or she thinks is important by his or her actions. I think we have to stop making these differentiations, believer, unbeliever, because I don't really know. I I know that there are people who've grown up in the church and have been in the church, but sometimes I will say that fruit isn't good. So do I have to kind of turn my head sideways and say, okay, that's a person who's a believer but not doing what's right, whereas there are people who don't profess Christ, but boy, they're doing what's right, and and they're actually following God's law, even though they wouldn't give tribute to it, so I, I think we need to look at it from the point of view that Jesus came to save sinners, and that needs to be our focus And that doesn't mean, you know, become a doormat, be wishy-washy, be spineless, and just give in to everything. No, just like the apostles, they stood for truth. But they were willing to suffer persecution rather than they were going to do what they had to do to win the argument.
0: Yeah, the example of uh, those early martyrs and those places in the Roman Empire where they were subjected to martyrdom, killing, uh, persecution... From what we know, many of them, if not most, didn't fight back, especially those who were thrown into various coliseums around the empire and made sport of. But as we also know over time, it was their witness that began to turn the pagans against that sort of thing because they realized either from the standpoint of well this isn't this is no fun watching these people because they're not resisting any of this; they're just dying or you know, this is pretty cruel. I, I don't think we should be doing this to these people, even though we don't like them very much. So there was a a position there of being willing to be suffering persecution for the sake of the kingdom that had that kind of effect that we talked about, or that I mentioned earlier about the mercy ministry having the same or similar effect.
1: Right. Or I mean, you've, you've given a couple of reasons why it ended, or they asked themselves the question. Why would people do this? Why wouldn't people recant? Why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they just say Caesar is Lord? Cross your fingers. You don't have to mean it. Just say it to get out of it. They gave a witness that there was something so strong, so vibrant that it was more important than their own life. And I don't think by and large, not only have modern day Christians learned about the early church and what it went through, I think they want the easy street way. I want to just get in charge so I can silence all these people who disagree with me, as opposed to looking at all these people who disagree with me as people who, if they don't adhere to what God says, if they don't receive the reality that apart from Jesus, there is no salvation, that they're doomed. Do you really care about the person who opposes you stringently, whether he's far away in the White House or the governor's mansion or whatever it is? Is it him that's the object of your anger, or is it the sin that he or she perpetrates?
0: And I think that's another way that, uh, especially those of us who would broadly define ourselves as traditional or conservative, uh, reformed believers or, or whatever, that we need to be on our guard against cultural influence. You know, it's easy to point the finger at churches where there has been wholesale you know, giving over to certain aspects of cultural influence, you know, drag queen story hours in the church, uh, all, all kinds of things that really mimic the direction of a woke culture as opposed to a biblical culture. Well, the other side of that is that we're also in a culture that is an angry one. And so if we are pretty much what we've been saying all along, if we're acting in our churches or among unbelievers or anyone else that we're interacting with, even outside the church, as if we're involved in a social media platform dispute, then that too is us having acquiesced to cultural influences that are not biblical. So that's um, an, an area that perhaps is a blind spot for some of us. And maybe those people who've, who've given themselves over to the more, uh, for lack of a better term, liberal aspects of the culture look at those of us who haven't as saying, well, obviously, you know, they're hard-hearted and, and narrow-minded. And that, that's, you know, something that we, we aren't like
1: that. Yeah, because I've even heard people say, I won't name the, uh, the network, even that commentator agreed that this was bad. Like, who cares that that commentator agreed that it was bad? What's the ground on which you stand? You know, the scripture says, let God be true and all men liars. Who cares if everybody agreed with something that wasn't biblical? We're not supposed to say, well, you know, 99% of people think this. Well, 99% of people could be wrong if it's contrary to scripture. And that's where I think that when you know your Bible well enough and believe it, then as you're talking to people, believers in and outside the church, because they're unbelievers in the church as well as they're believers outside the church who formally don't, uh, you know, attend a church, is that you're able to show that Jesus's Sermon on the Mount doesn't contradict the laws of Leviticus, doesn't contradict the Great Commission, and then if you know our forefathers in the face, you can cite what Nehemiah did, you can cite what Moses did, you you can point out what Paul did. In other words, we're not being witnesses to conservatism. We shouldn't be even witnesses to Americanism, although there might be value in those positions. We have to be first and foremost willing to conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And the word of our testimony will include apologetics. Talking about the blood of the lamb will include sharing the Bible. But we got to get away from the fact that this is our battle to win. Because if we're going to be consistent, the battle has been won. We're in the cleanup operation.
0: And there is a very interesting aspect to this that I think, at least it bears mentioning, where the Lord is seeking to accomplish any number of things when we do bear witness in an effective and powerful way and in a way that is engaging. And let me explain what I mean by that. There's a very interesting episode in the book of Genesis where the Lord calls his people through various means to actually leave the promised land, the land of Canaan, where he told them, this is your inheritance forever. But he brings about a situation where Jacob, that is Israel, and his family have to get out of the promised land and go to Egypt because of a famine. And of course, Joseph is, according you know, to Genesis 46, is the governor of Egypt and it all works out great. But you have to wonder, well, wait a minute. He gave them the promised land and now he's telling them to get out. And at least one reason is because of the famine. But then there's another aspect to it in that we know from the laws given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the people of Israel were warned against engaging in certain activities that were common in the Canaanite culture. People seem to forget sometimes, I think, that when we see these various expansions of the the summary of the law and the Ten Commandments is because these rather strange things that God's people were forbidden to do were all in evidence all around them. So it was, in some sense, a, a temptation. But the interesting thing is, You have to go back to the earlier part of Genesis where God called Abraham, and he basically tells him in Genesis 15 all about this, which, of course, I'm sure at the time it didn't mean much of anything to Abraham, but it looks like the ultimate purpose of that later journey out of the promised land into Egypt was not simply to get them away from harmful cultural influence, and it was not simply to avoid starvation from the famine, because the Lord said, for four hundred years, you're going to be slaves in that place, and then I will bring my judgment against Egypt. I don't even know if he, I don't remember if he said Egypt in, in Genesis 15 or not. But the point is, there is a larger purpose in God's plan in terms of our witnessing, in terms of our interaction with people. Now, that wasn't, you know, I'm sure that wasn't in Jacob's mind or Joseph's mind. They might have even known about that conversation he had with Abraham at that point. But God does accomplish. Uh, any number of things through our testimony and through our witnesses. So that's why it's important for us to be faithful in the ways that we're talking about, such a way that people can honestly say, well, you know, I look back on it and that guy or that woman, they really attempted to share that information with.
1: You think about it, the church grew and grows in the midst of sin and suffering, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So instead of trying to eliminate our own personal discomfort, we should recognize that in the face of this war, and it's a war that goes right back to the book of Genesis and will continue on in playing out in various ways with the ultimate victor already being known, that you oppose evil and you fight against it. But when the scripture tells us that God will handle the vengeance part of it, we don't have to, it's because I think, and you can correct me if I'm theologically wrong here, that part and parcel of our witness is that we're going to encounter people who are flaming enemies of us, but ultimately of Christ, and that God changes them. My husband and I were talking about Ananias having to go to Saul, God said, go see him. And we were joking and going, God, haven't you read the papers? You're asking me to go see Saul? I mean, he's not really friendly. You know, I, I didn't plan on dying this week or being arrested. <laughs> but what God says to Ananias is, no, you're going to go and he's going to learn how much he has to suffer for my namesake.
0: That is one of the most powerful uh, passages in the book of Acts that scene that you refer to, and it certainly sheds major light on what we're talking about here and the importance of the following of God's guidance and direction in his word about interacting with people who don't know the truth. I mean, we know from Paul's writings in Romans chapter 1, for example, that every unbeliever that we interact with is in a state of psychological disorder because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Their very being, everything about them, bears witness that they are in, uh, at enmity with God. But as he says, they, they, they hold that back. It, it's, a, for lack of a better term, an unconscious reaction. And that, I think, is at the root of a lot of psychological and emotional disorder, is the, the recognition that people have implicitly and just maybe below the, the level of their awareness that something is not right in their lives. And until the Lord, by his grace, presents something to them that allows them to see that and also a method by which or a passage by which they can find a way out of it, then that leads to a lot of dismay and drama and evil in their lives and the lives of those around them. But we know from what scripture teaches us that it is God's divine plan that his people be a part of dealing with that. Now, you know, one place that we haven't really talked about at least not directly about this kind of interaction and i'd be interested in your thoughts on this is what if some of this is taking place within our own families you know children brothers sisters spouses whatever where you have resistance to the kingdom message and how we would interact with that in our, within a family
1: so first and foremost my answer would be we shouldn't be surprised jesus said that you're supposed to love him more than father and mother, etc. cetera. So it wasn't like he didn't prepare us that there could be issues. All right. We were told that we'd have to pick up our cross. He didn't say, but it won't happen within the confines of your house or your extended family or the church that you're in. So this is where I believe it goes back to what our role is with ourselves in relationship to God and with other people, starting with our children, grandchildren, extended family. See, the message isn't that we need to make Jesus Lord of our lives. We're told in the scripture, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So the person who's spouting all sorts of blasphemies against God, Jesus Christ is still his Lord. Nobody makes Jesus their Lord. Question isn't so much, is Jesus your Savior? Is Jesus your Lord? The question is, are you chosen of God to be part of his kingdom? And then we have to be honest. And it's hard, Charles, to be honest when the the members of your church are looking at your family and saying, well, that family must not be doing a good job. Look what their children are doing. And that's where our pride gets in the way. And that's where a lot of compromise takes place, because we're more concerned about what people think of us than what God thinks of us. So Jesus is Lord of everything. And there are those who will be saved because God elected them to be saved. And by the same token, there'll be those who are damned because that's what God ordained. Now that's not very popular because then people will go, I could never follow a God like that. Well, okay. Whether or not you could, it's what the Bible clearly states. So our mission, so to speak, would be to acquaint people with the truth. And the episode in acts that you showed, I, Paul was convinced they heard him and they were rejecting him. And so he wasn't beating a dead horse. In other words, he was going to go to people who were receptive and he had obviously his patience wore thin because of, you know, it was obvious whatever he was going to accomplish there had been accomplished and he moved on. And we've got to be willing to do that. Even if it's our own children or our best friends or whatever, if they've heard us, we don't stop saying and being who we are, but maybe our actions are going to be much more telling to them than the words we say.
0: You know, if we have known someone for a long time, let's say 15, 20, 30 years, and we say met that person when they were 20 or 25 years old, and maybe we haven't seen them for 10 or 15 years and they're in their 30s or 40s, and then another 10 or 15 years goes by and they're in their 50s or 60s or whatever, most of us are not terribly surprised that they've changed over time as aging in whatever way we describe it, that's what happens. And I think we need to remember that in terms of our encounters with people with whom we have hopefully positive kingdom interaction, because I think the tendency is for us to say, have maybe, unfortunately, have one of these angry encounters and just say, well, that person, you know, they're going to hell because they wouldn't agree with my position. And, and I think this applies too in terms of our family members. You know, we have sort of a snapshot image that's from a certain time, and place. But that person is moving through a, a path of time on their own journey toward their own end time, their own personal leaving of this physical world. And so we don't know where they're going to be spiritually uh, 10 years from now, 15 or 20 years from now. So we may have a very negative attitude about what appears to be uh, an angry rejection of the message that may even brought out some anger in us. But how many of us might be totally shocked to learn 15, 20 years later, that that person we talked to on the plane, on the bus ride, or whatever, that seemed to be totally unresponsive to what we were trying to share with them, uh, later became a strong believer and follower of Jesus. I think that's we have to keep that in mind, that uh, you know, we don't have the privilege most of the time to see people, and even if, again, over the period of their lives spiritually, and even if it is someone that we would, at any given moment, You can't just freeze frame them in that place and say, well, that's where they're going to be all for the rest of time.
1: And our encounters with people, what if we change the focus that I don't know if I'm going to have another encounter with this person as the circumstance permits to make the most of it. Now, obviously, you can have an encounter with somebody who's holding the door for you and you walk in and that may be the only encounter you ever have. Is there a way to let your light shine in that encounter? You have an opportunity to correct something that someone's doing so that they won't get injured. How do you deliver that message? Not so much to be nice or not nice, but to be effective. So do sometimes with someone you know from your family or your church, you have to say hard words. Well, you say the hard words because faithful are the wounds of a friend and you're not going to flatter them into a further problem. Okay. So imagine if we looked at every encounter with everybody, in-person encounters and then we could extend it to, you know, online encounters, etc., is that we were going to be a living witness and make that a priority. So if somebody says something nasty, well, we can answer in kind or we can let our light shine in a different way because maybe that's the only encounter you get. And did you want to be a good ambassador at that point? And I think it this involves not other people changing Charles. It gives us a view that says, why did God create us to be part of this? There have been a number of Christian writers, men leaders who have passed away this year. And a lot of people are like, why would God take that person? Because God had a use for that person's life, and then it was over. So there must be that he has use for our lives as well, whether we become famous or not. And to value the fact that if our eyes have been open and our ears have been open, God's done that for a reason, not because we were so cute or so smart.
0: Yeah, and uh, I've been thinking about something that happened, if I may be allowed a personal reference in my life many, many years ago, and I'll wind up my part of this with this story. Uh, I think it's pertinent. When I was a student in university, I was a philosophy major, and for the most part, I was the village atheist. I went through a period of really principled philosophical atheism, and I would seek out one-on-one discussions with Christians primarily because that's was the largest group of people on that particular secular campus. But I remember on a number of occasions, I had discussions with people who were familiar with where I was coming from, and these were evangelical Christian types who either sought to witness to me or they listened to something I said in an extended discussion and went out of their way to say that my atheistic arguments in no way convinced them and it only made them stronger in their faith. And some of these people, as I said, attempted to, broadly speaking, witness to me at the time. I can't think of any one of them that it made a difference to where I, uh, two five years later, out of college, said, "You know, I'm really glad so and so witnessed to me then, because now I believe." Now I'm not saying their their actions were fruitless, but the 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 purpose for which they intended it was not used at that particular time. And I think we need to remember that. That's one reason we need to be very, I'll use the term again, winsome in our interactions with unbelievers, because likely the Lord is not going to use uh, a one plus one equals two type of argument to uh, completely convince someone of the wrong direction that they're headed. Uh, He's going to use the circumstances of life and what they understand within their own emotional emotions and hearts about who they are and their, uh, their very dramatically despicable place in life unless they cry out to God for mercy.
1: And I would say along with that, the references in scripture to gardens, sowing seeds. Some people sow the seed, then other people water the seed, then other people witness it growing up. And then at some point, somebody harvests. If you have to sow the seed and harvest immediately, so you sow the seed and then you dig it up and you see if it's growing. Well, you've just destroyed the process. So as long as we are faithful at every point of interaction and recognizing, I'm not going to accomplish this all in one conversation, but the very fact that you look back and say, those people, you know, I remember the conversations. They didn't convert you. Holy Spirit converted you, but God uses his people to do it. So I think if we answer the question, why argue? Don't argue, give your witness. This is what happens with me. This is what happens in the world. Look at this and help people see the truth. Then whether or not they high five you and say, you've totally changed my mind is sort of off the point. If you've done a good job and you've been faithful, God will bring the results. And when we stand before God, it's not, okay, I want to know how many souls you tallied out. Were you faithful? that That's the question that We should be prepared to answer, were we faithful?
0: Yeah, and I think uh, just one last thing I'll say that as as we've talked about this, the chances are most of us will not be called to be Paul at Athens. Far more, many of us will be called to be Paul and the uh, Philippian
1: jailer. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right, Charles. Well, thanks for the discussion, listeners. Out of the question podcast at gmail.com is how to get in touch with us. I really do thank those who get in touch and give us suggestions for conversations. That's how a lot of our conversations, the topics come about. And we'll look forward to you joining us next time.
0: Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.